Well, we are continuing to work our way through the gospel according to Luke. And this morning, we come to Luke chapter 18. And we'll be looking at verses 1 through 8. Luke chapter 18, 1 through 8. Now, he was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not lose heart. Saying, in a certain city there was a judge who did not fear God and did not respect man. There was a widow in that city, and she kept coming to him, saying, Give me legal protection from my opponent. For a while he was unwilling But afterward, he said to himself, even though I do not fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection. Otherwise, by continually coming, she will wear me out. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now, will not God bring about justice for his elect? Who cry to him day and night? And will he delay long over them? I tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? This passage is connected with the passage that we looked at last week. That shouldn't be a surprise. There is a flow to every book of Scripture. It was a passage that dealt with the final judgment, with the kingdom, with the coming of Christ. You see that in the end of Luke chapter 17, verse 22 through the end of the chapter. That discussion last week was directed to the disciples. This passage is as well. Nothing has changed. When you see verse 1 of chapter 18 and you read, Now he was telling them, and you say, well, who was them? Well, you just trace back through the previous passage, and you find out that he was talking to the disciples, and he still is. But it was directed to the disciples, if you'll remember, in the context of questions that had come to Jesus from the Pharisees. They were questioning Jesus about the kingdom and about the judgment. And this prompted him then to speak of his own coming and to tell them that their focus upon the signs of the kingdom was misdirected. That's not what they should be thinking about, not what they should be looking for. There were deeper and greater things which should have been engaging their attention as they contemplated the coming of the kingdom. As they thought about the judgment of God. As they thought about the second coming of Christ. And so in this passage, Jesus comments about prayer, though they are universally applicable to Christians are set in a specific context and that is the context of his discussion about the second coming. 
In particular, Jesus is speaking to his disciples about their own attitude and their own posture as they await the second coming of Christ. He has words for them about prayer and about hope. He knows that his disciples are going to face enormous challenges, not only in the days running up to and including the trial and the crucifixion of Christ, but in the days and years which follow, as they will experience tribulation, persecution, when they will be oppressed and they will be marginalized, They will be threatened and beaten, and most of them martyred. And in all of this, Jesus knows they will be tempted to lose hope. So he's speaking to them in that context about how he wants them to await his coming in the midst of that kind of environment, that kind of atmosphere, those responses which will inevitably come when the gospel is being proclaimed. Just as our own people experienced this weekend. It's very possible that in this room today are men and women who have long known the gospel, who long ago responded to that gospel in repentance and faith, who have walked with the Lord over many, many years, but who are experiencing in this moment a time of trial and testing, which is presenting a challenge to that faith, and which perhaps is causing them to lose hope. I don't know what all of those situations may be, I know some of them. I know some of the ways that some of you are struggling. And what I would say to you this morning, no matter what your personal trial may be, is this. Your situation is not unique, and you are not alone. Your situation is not unique, and you are not alone. When we are in the midst of difficult circumstances, the devil would like nothing better than to have us believe that no one has ever experienced our kind of pain and anguish before. He wants us to lose perspective. He wants us to think that we are alone. And he wants us full of pride about it. And that's really the result of that kind of thinking, isn't it? We don't normally see it that way, but that's what it is. It's pride. What else can you call it when you begin to think that out of the mass of humanity, all down through history, you stand alone? Out of the billions and billions of people who have lived and died, no one has gone through what you're going through. No one has endured your pain. Well, in that kind of mindset, where is their help? There is only hopelessness and despair and pride. And pride and hopelessness and despair are the primary tools in the devil's workbox. And so as Jesus teaches his disciples, he's also teaching us and he's reminding us that 
our situation, no matter what it may be, it's not unique, and we are not alone. The disciples themselves faced circumstances that would try them and test them, but those circumstances tried them and tested them for a purpose, just as your trials and testings have a purpose. That purpose is to refine you. That's what fire does, isn't it? The disciples and you and me, we are in the providence of God brought through the fire so that our faith may be refined. Jesus, because of his concern for his disciples, because of his concern for us, even as he is addressing his second coming, even as he is addressing the kingdom, even as he is addressing the final judgment, was concerned to prepare his people for those trials and testings. Because he knew that when those trials come, one of the results is that the one undergoing the trial is tempted to lose hope. He is especially concerned to speak to believers about the trial of despair. Listen to what he says. Before the parable is even introduced, Luke tells us the reason that Jesus told this story. He was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not lose heart. So Jesus doesn't waste any words. He's telling the disciples a story designed to encourage them to continue in prayer and not to lose heart because he knew that was a real possibility. That they would not continue in prayer and because they didn't continue in prayer, they would be more prone to lose heart. And some of you may be at that point today. I know that. This passage is not just for the disciples 2,000 years ago. It is for us. Perhaps you have so lost hope that you can't get a word of prayer out of your mouth. Or if you can, you feel like it's not going through the ceiling. You feel as if you've been completely forgotten and you've been cast out on your own and there is no hope in your heart. If that is where you are today, then this passage is for you. If that's where you are today, if that is where you have been tempted to be, then Jesus has a word for you here in this passage. And the word is very simple but very important. Keep praying and don't lose heart. We can close up now. He gives it to us right there in the first verse. Now, the way that he brings this message home is stunning. Can you put yourself into the shoes of those who would have first heard these words? Jewish people in the first century who have heard Jesus telling this story. As he prepares to encourage his disciples to keep praying and not lose heart, he says this, essentially, let me tell you a story. There was a judge, and he did not fear God. 
and he did not respect people. And immediately the Jewish people who are hearing this story are saying, uh-oh, that's not a good position to be in. You don't want to come before that kind of a judge. This is not the judge that you want if you're looking for justice and mercy. This judge does not fear God and he does not respect people. And immediately those who are listening to Jesus are saying to themselves, I get the picture. Whoever is going into this guy's courtroom is in trouble. We hear this and we ask. Wait, wait a minute. This, this is a story which is supposed to encourage me. <laughs> to pray and to not lose heart. And the question that comes to us is, uh, how does that work? Well, it is that kind of story, as we're going to see. He begins to tell the the story of a judge who does not fear God, does not respect people, and then it just gets worse. Once he introduces this hard, unjust, unmerciful judge, Jesus goes on to say, oh, and there's also a widow. And once the people heard that, of course, everybody thinks, well, this is even worse. Because in Jesus' time, a widow is the perfect picture of a person without resource and without influence. The very last person that you would expect to have resources at hand to get justice would be a widow. Nothing has changed much in the last 2,000 years. Everybody can get justice, but you've got a much better chance of getting justice if you've got money. What makes it worse, of course, is that this widow is not coming to just any judge. She's coming to this judge who doesn't fear God or respect people. And everybody who's listening to the story is saying, this is really bad. This is not going to turn out well. I don't know what's going to happen to this widow, but it's not going to be good because she's coming before the wrong judge and she has no resource and she has no influence and she's coming to a person that doesn't fear God or respect people. But, as is so often the case, there's a little phrase, a little comment, a little twist in Jesus' teaching that is intended to cause his listeners to stop and to wonder if perhaps his story is not as predictable as they thought. And that phrase is found in verse 3. There was a widow in that city and she kept coming to him. And Jesus is telling us that she keeps coming and coming and coming and coming. She won't leave the guy alone. And what's the result? The result is that he finally breaks. Jesus says for a little while he was unwilling, but afterward he said to himself, even though I do not fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection. Otherwise, by continually coming, she will wear me out. He says to himself, you know, even though I don't fear God or respect people, this woman's driving me nuts. 
She just won't let it go. He's used to that. He's in that kind of position where typically if someone comes to him and he doesn't want anything to to do with that situation, he'll just ignore them and eventually they'll, they'll go. She's not playing by the rules. So just to get her out of his hair so she doesn't wear him out, he gives her the justice that he seeks. Simply because he doesn't want to see her again. And then when Jesus has finished telling the story, he turns to his disciples in verse 6 and says, Hear what the unrighteous judge said. And what he means, of course, is make sure you hear and understand the message of this story that I've been telling you. And what's the message? How is the story going to help me keep praying and not lose heart? Jesus tells us in verses 7 and 8. Will not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night? And will he delay long over them? I tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly. However, When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? It's here that Jesus tells you how this story keeps believers who are feeling hopeless to keep praying and not to lose heart. There are four things in particular that Jesus says here which ought to be of great encouragement to us. The first one is this. The first thing that Jesus has to say to encourage us not to lose heart is this. Your God is not like this unjust judge. Your God is not like this unjust judge. But here's the problem. When you are hopeless, isn't that how you're tempted to think about God? When you're feeling hopeless, aren't you tempted to think that he doesn't care? We begin to think that God is like this unjust judge. Jesus' whole point in telling this story is to say to you, that is not what God is like. Look how he says it. Will not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night? And Jesus is clearly painting a contrast. If this judge for his own selfish reasons, will give the widow justice, will not your God, who loves you as a heavenly father, give you justice? But when you're feeling hopeless, sometimes it's hard to believe that. It's hard to remember that. So the first thing that Jesus is teaching in this passage is that God is more willing to hear your prayer than you are to pray it. He is more ready to answer your prayer than you are to ask. Your God is not like the unjust judge. He's not unconcerned for your well-being. That judge couldn't care less about that widow. He just wanted her to leave him alone. 
That is not our God. So when Jesus paints his picture of the unjust judge, he's painting a picture of what we think about God when we're in the hard place. And he says to you, guess what? Your God's not like that. You think he's up on the throne, he's far away, he's remote, he's untouchable, just like that judge. You think he's not interested in you, that he's overlooked you, that he's forgotten about you. But that is not who God is. He's not like that. So the first bit of good news in this passage is that your God is more willing to hear your prayer than you are to pray it. And if you're a hopeless person, then you understand how important that is. Because if you've ever lost hope, you know what it is to lose the ability to even pray. And Jesus is saying, don't you understand that your heavenly Father is just waiting to be gracious to you? And he is. It's just that in the midst of our hopelessness, we might not be able to see it in the moment. Everything goes black in hopelessness. Tunnel vision is all we have. What's causing the hopelessness? What's the problem? What's the trial? That's all we see. And Jesus is trying to open up our vision so that we remember who God is. So that we see once again what he is like. Jesus doesn't stop there. He says something else that ought to be a great encouragement to us. Second thing he says, which is also good news for us, is this. You are not like that widow. God's not like the unjust judge, and you are not like that widow. Now, you're supposed to be like the widow in one sense, in her persistence. We are to pray without ceasing. We are to constantly bring those concerns before the throne of God. She is a picture of persistence in prayer. She was getting no answer. She continued pounding on that judge's door until she got an answer. So Jesus is picturing her positively to us as an example of persistent prayer. But there's another important way in which we are not like her. You see, you're in a different position than you perceive yourself to be when you are in despair. When you're without hope and you can't even get a prayer out of your throat, you think you're in the position of the importunate widow with no resources and no influence, but that's not you. You see how Jesus teaches that in this passage. Look at what he says in verse 7. Will not God bring about justice to whom? To his elect. Now put aside all of your objections to predestination for just a few moments. Jesus is saying, don't you realize who you are? If you are a believer, if you are in Christ, 
Don't you realize who you are? You are not a widow with no resources. You are the beloved elect of God. That's who you are. And you have all of his resources at your disposal. If you are in Christ, it is because God has set his love upon you. From before the foundation of the world, before you existed, he loved you. And he loved you so much that he gave his only son to die in your place. And then he not only forgave you your sins, he adopted you as his child. You are a co-heir with Jesus Christ. That's who you are. You are his child, you are his chosen, and he loves you. By the way, that is what the doctrine of predestination is for. Not so you can argue about it. But so, but, but, but so that when all the lights go out, you still know that God loves you. And Jesus says, this is the good news for you. You're not in the position of that widow before the unjust judge. You are a child of the king. And when you pray, you are coming before a king to ask his help. You are coming to a king who loves you because he chose you. You're coming to a king who has within himself infinite resource. I've, I've heard people talk like this. Right? You probably have too. There's something going on in their lives. Say, you know what? God has a lot more to worry about than this thing happening to me. As if there's a limitation on the resource of God. God can and will deal with every issue of your life. And when he has done that, he will have no fewer resources than when he began. Because we serve an infinite God and an infinite king. This unjust judge could not have cared less about the widow. That's the proper grammar, by the way. Could not have cared less. Not could have cared less. That says the opposite. But if you're in Christ, you're in a completely different position. You're chosen. You're his elect. He has set his love upon you from the foundation of the world. And even though you feel as if in this moment there is no hope, you are, no matter how you feel, his beloved. The way you feel in the moment doesn't change your position before God. So Jesus says, not only is God more willing to hear your prayers than you are to pray them, but that we are in a different position than we perceive ourselves to be in. If we are in Christ, we are his chosen children. Now there's another thing here in verse 7 that we ought not miss. He reminds his disciples that he himself is coming to set everything right. Where does he do that? Look at what he says, beginning in verse 7. Will not God... 
bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night. And it's a rhetorical question. It's pretty obvious to see as we're reading through this. The obvious answer is yes. He will. But what we want to know, of course, is when. <laughs> I'm going through this now. I want to know when he's going to be bring, bring justice. Jesus then goes on to ask another question. And will he delay long over them? It seems like he delays long. We pray and we know that he hears the prayers of his people. He hears us crying out, asking for justice, and we want to know when that justice will come. And Jesus says, I tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly. And then look at the next phrase. However, when the Son of Man comes. Now pause right there. I know the sentence keeps going and we'll come back to that in a moment. But I want you to see what Jesus is doing. He is equating the full answer of his people's cries for justice in, their midst of, in the midst of their hopelessness and despair. He's, he's connecting that with his coming. I am coming and justice is coming with me. The very purpose of my coming is to set everything right and to bring justice. Now, the language that's used here is very interesting. Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will bring about justice for them quickly. And you say to me, of course, well, we've been waiting 2,000 years. Doesn't seem quick to me. When a lifetime these days, 80 years or so, 90 years if you're going well, quickly? 2,000 years? Well, we need to understand that was a question already being asked in the first century. It's written down in Peter's epistles. You remember a discussion that Peter has when a hypothetical questioner says, well, he still hasn't come back. Here we are 30 years after the resurrection. <laughs> and they were saying, well, that doesn't sound quickly to us. Peter says, don't judge the Lord as you would men. With the Lord, a day is as a thousand years. A thousand years as a day. And Jesus is saying, the Lord has heard your prayers and my coming is the answer to those prayers. And when I come, I will give the justice that you are looking for. And here's how we need to understand this. Jesus, in his first coming, goes to the cross and in so doing, bears injustice. So that we don't get what we deserve. When he comes again a second time, he brings justice to give us blessings that we don't deserve. 
He bore injustice so that we don't get what we deserve. And he comes again bringing justice so that we will receive blessings that we do not deserve. And Jesus is saying to his disciples, my coming is an answer to your cries to the Father for justice in the midst of your hopelessness and your despair. There will be some things that are not put right in this life. And Jesus knows that. But the justice of the kingdom is not confined to this life. God is not bound by time to accomplish his justice in our lifetime. The Lord may not come when you want him, but he is always on time. We have our own timetable and the Lord has his. And the Lord Jesus is saying, I will take care of everything. No prayer will go unanswered. There will be no ultimate hopelessness for my people. However hard your situation may be right now, I am coming. And when I come, I will set everything right. And that leads into this last phrase, doesn't it? However... When the Son of Man comes, when he comes to set everything right, will he find faith on the earth? And that phrase explains to us how this passage connects with the passage that goes before it, because Jesus has been talking about preparation for his coming, his second coming. How do we prepare? How do you get ready for his coming? What is this faith which Jesus wants to find on the earth. It's not in looking for signs. That was half of the answer at the end of chapter 17. It's not in looking for signs. It is rather by trusting and praying. That's how faith is exhibited. His question When I return, when I come, and I bring justice with me, will I find you praying and trusting me? In your trials and your tribulations, when I come, will I find you believing? Will I find you praying to me because you trust me in the midst of your trial, in the midst of your hardship, in the midst of despair? It's important for us to understand that all the encouragement that Jesus gives in this passage is for those who trust in him. They're the only human beings in this world who have no right to be hopeless. Even in the midst of a struggle. The reason why we who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ have no right to be hopeless is not because of us, but because of him. And that's why the way to get ready for his coming is to trust in him. Even when it gets dark. Faith points you away from yourself, doesn't it? It points you away from yourself to God's word. It points you away from yourself to God's promise. It points you away from yourself to God's son. The reason we do not despair in this world is not because 
of us. It's not that I have plenty... Let me put it this way. I have plenty of reason to despair. Because I am reason to despair. I can give a thousand reasons to be hopeless from within my own heart. But my hope is not in the purity of my own heart. My hope is in the Lord. And he is why I do not despair. So the way to be ready for his coming is what? To trust and to pray. Or to go right back to the description Jesus gave in the very first verse of chapter 18. To pray and not lose heart. To show that at all times, all times, we are to pray and not lose heart. Don't despair. Don't lose heart. Trust in Christ and manifest that trust by means of faithful, believing prayer. Father, make this a reality within us. May this be true of us, that when things get difficult, when we cannot see through the the gloom of the trials and the tribulations that you have brought into our hearts, when we can't see you, when we don't sense your presence, Father, it is then, precisely then, that we must trust. It is then that we must work at prayer. Whether we can feel it accomplishing anything or not, Father, Let us not be driven by our feelings, but let us be driven by what we know of you. You are gracious, and you are faithful. You are our Father. Father, answer these prayers as we pray them in the name of Christ. Amen. If you would, him 401, when peace like a river attendeth my way, it is well with my soul. Is my way the towers like sea billows roll? to say it is well it is well with my soul
it is well with my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul. Eaten should buffet, the trial should come. Let this blessed assurance control. And hopefully they guarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. It is well. It is well, it is well with my soul. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is If you uh, could stay around with us for uh, a short time, uh, we'll be celebrating uh, with Chris and Lauren uh, as they renew their vows along with their church family this morning. Uh, we'll take a few moments just to set things up and uh, then get right to it. Now, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen. God bless you.